Baptist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver. So they may once again offer sacrifices acceptable to the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Lord God, uh, once again, we thank you. We thank you for this time and for this day and for this opportunity to gather as your church. Lord, I thank you for Sundays. Sundays that give us the opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters and to acclaim your name to, to, uh, louder than all of the other noises around us to say that you are Lord, that you are Savior, that you are, you've come once again into this place, into our midst, and your longing is that we would take your presence with us out to a dark world. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that as we have gathered today, as we have heard um, in song and we have affirmed and we have given of our offerings and we've now heard your word that you will continue to speak through, to us. You would illuminate your word in, in our lives today. Lord, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be yours. And let them be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer, and it is in the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let me ask this. How many of y'all have any Christmas traditions, seasonal traditions, that you have to have, and if you don't, well, then it's not happening? Anybody? A couple of you? Um, Recipes that have to be made, songs that have to be sung, movies that you have to watch or it's just not happening. All right. uh, I got a couple of those. Um, I've, I realized that I'm now corrupting my children that it's not Christmas for them until we do those either. So I'm doing something right, you know. A um, couple of those pieces that just have to be in order for it to happen. One of those um, is from one of my earliest memories is one particular song or album, really. Um, <clears throat> Christmas Eve would come, and I'm sure we listened to it prior to this, but Christmas Eve would come. And my grandmother, who lived with us, um, she would be very busy in the kitchen. She'd be making oyster stew and Hungarian coffee cake and all of the goodies that go along with it. All right, and she'd just be busy, busy, busy. And the longer things took and the more um, detail she had to get, the crabbier she got. Anybody got any grannies like that? Um, none of us are those people, of course. But um, granny would get more and more, Nana would get more and more crabby as the night got on. And to finally, she would go, that's it. I need my Johnny. 
We all knew what that meant. She would walk over to the giant record player cabinet that we had in our living room. She would go in and she would pull out Johnny Mathis's Christmas album. <laughs> the velvety sounds of Johnny Mathis would then fill the room and then we would hear I'll be home for Christmas or silver bells and the world was right again. There's another song um, that Johnny did, not on that 1958 recording, but on another one, but I bet you have heard before. I've had the guys get it ready for us. Go ahead and put it on. Let me see if you recognize this. There he is. Haul out the holly, put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Recognize, put your hands up. Yeah, we need a little Christmas, right? All right, guys, bring it down. This song is actually from a Broadway musical by the name of Mame. And in that, that, that musical, Mame has just lost her fortune in the 1929 stock market crash, and she's devastated. But here in this moment, it's right after November, it's right after Thanksgiving, she needs something to lift the spirits. And so they start getting into the season, and they get it all out, and she sings, We need a little Christmas right this very minute. Da, 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 da. You know, whatever. <laughs> I bet you've heard that song, if not by Johnny, by somebody else, in my house, we need a Johnny in order for it to be Christmas. As a kid, that song got us ready in our household. And I remember the garland and the tinsel and all of the foods and all of it, including Johnny, meant for us that it was Christmas time. But can I level with you about something this morning? Um, I love that song. I still listen to Johnny Mathis. I have the album on my iPod so I can, or I, on my phone so I can listen to it. But as I've gotten older, especially this season, I've realized something. I don't want just a little Christmas. What I'm realizing is I need a little bit more than just a little Christmas. I'm longing for something that's more than just put up the tree and the tinsel and the lights and the yada, yada, yada. I'm, I'm needing something else. Last week, um, I mentioned this man by the name of Charles Jennings who provided the text for Handel's Messiah. Jennings was um, from a very wealthy family. He was also a pretty outspoken politician in London and a very devout Christian. And as he looked across the, uh, the landscape of the church, the Anglican church particularly of the day, Jennings noticed that there was a problem that was arising that he needed to speak out of. See, there was this... Um, this challenge to the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture was being passed over for new ways of thinking, new traditions, new understandings, particularly about how God interacted with humanity. Um, this movement was saying that what God had done is kind of like wound up a alarm clock, put it on the table with creation, and then just stepped away. Started the whole thing and then has never intervened, is not a God who gets into the story, not a God who messes with what he started. And Jenin said, whoa, 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 whoa. Scripture, the authority of our lives, tells us something much different. Jenin's drew from these passages and sees that God just not as, doesn't just choose to interact with us, but God chooses to step into the story. 
becomes incarnational, becomes with us. One musical scholar calls Jenin's text a meditation of our Lord as Messiah who has come that amounts little short to a work of genius. That's before Handel put his music, just the text itself. Jennings didn't want um, the life of Christ acted out in some kind of Broadway musical with dancing. He said he wanted the words and the music together to acclaim something that I find fascinating. I read this this week. He wanted the mystery of godliness to rise up in this, this work. He's very clear um, that this, it, was to be, it was to invoke a response in the audience. When um, Joy and I were at Bryan College, we had just started dating, and she was singing with the Bryan College Chorale, and it was Advent season. Um, they didn't call it Advent at Bryan, they just called it Christmas. But they wanted to do um, Handel's Messiah, and so they did like 16, ver- you know, 16 Sundays of it. <laughs> they sang it all the time, and because I was a good boyfriend, I showed up every time they performed the thing. About the third or fourth, I could have joined in and sang with them. Um, but we were there, and even after all this time, hearing Handel's Messiah over and over, there's something about that work that just creates an awe. It makes me pause. It makes me still, which is what Jennings, which is what Handel were hoping for. Now, I don't think they realized that the Messiah was going to have this kind of lasting effect. They only knew that there was a longing for something in humanity that needed a voice, needed a voice. And this longing continues to captivate and capture us today, if we'll let it. It's a longing for something more than the tinsel and the trees and just a little bit of Christmas. It's a longing to hope again. Our passage this morning is a bit of an unusual passage when we're talking about hope or in Advent in general. It comes directly from one of the texts that Jennings provided to handle when they were writing together. Malachi is a prophet who was bringing a word to a bunch of downtrodden Israelites who needed some good news. Have you ever been in a place where you just need some good news? Good grief, just a little bit of good news. Well, Malachi brings some good news to the people, but if you read that passage with us up on the screen, it doesn't sound very good, does it? I'm on the outset, that's some rough stuff. Listen again. Look, Malachi says, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare a way before me. Woo, that sounds good. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Sign me up, right? That sounds great. He's coming. It's going to be great. Now, in the Messiah, when this text is sung, it is sung by a bass. And it is done in the King James Version, the King Jimmy. And he says, thus saith the Lord. And it is ominous. Don't laugh, that's rude. I know I'm not a base. Mean. Well, I have the altars open now for those who want to confess. Um, No, in that that moment, it it is brooding. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Um, Anybody ever been driving up our Kentucky roads 
and seen a sign on the side that says something like, the Lord is coming, are you ready? Often it has a clock that looks like it's counting down. What's that? What are those signs trying to make us feel? They're trying to make us feel a little uneasy, maybe nervous, a sense of urgency, guilty probably that we're broken, that God's coming to get us, coming to judge. When we read these passages from Malachi, it can sound a whole lot like a big billboard on the side of the road that says, God's coming, are you ready? Don't mess up. If you do, you're just one thread away from the abyss. But that, if we read it that way, if we look at Malachi that way, we really do a disservice to the passage. Of course, Malachi doesn't help us when he adds on who will, able, who will be able to endure it when he comes. We won't be able to stand and face him when he appears. He'll be like a blazing fire that refines metal or a strong soap that bleaches clothes. Uh, that sounds terrible. Sounds judge, judgy. A fierce God coming with wrath. Then he says, this God will be like a refiner of silver who burns away the dross. He'll purify the priests, the Levites, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Wait a minute, Jim. You just said the sign wasn't supposed to be judgy and heavy. That sure sounds awful. I mean, burning and refining. Anybody up for that? I didn't think so. I mean, it doesn't sound very Adventy. It doesn't sound very Christmassy. Not candy canes or sweet little eight pound, six ounce baby born Jesus and gold fleeced swaddling clothes. It's not it. Malachi's audience, and, and, and certainly Jesus' audience, thought about the coming judgment of God in a far different way than the sign on the side of the road does. You see, for the Hebrews, judgment, God coming in the way that Malachi mentioned, actually is a good thing. It was something to, ooh, yes. And not because there's this attitude that says, finally, our enemies are going to get it, though that might have been in some of them. The real reason judgment was a good thing, was a good word, was because it foreshadows what happens on the other side. Um, let's think about the plagues of Egypt. Anyone here want to live with all of our water turning to blood or gnats jumping all over the place or hailstones the size of a Prius falling from the sky? Anybody up for that? Again, I don't see any hands going up. No, nobody is. But how many of us are up for what happens afterwards for the Hebrews' freedom? for release from captivity, eventually a promised land? That sounds a whole lot better, doesn't it? And so judgment in, in Israel's day, as Malachi is saying, is there's going to be a God who's coming. A Lord, the Lord is going to show up, and he's going to set everything back to right. That's, that's worth smiling about. That's worth getting excited about. It's going to come, sure, with some unique moments and unique happenings, but it is coming. The messenger of the Lord is coming. He's going to get it back to and he's going to come, how does he say, like a refining fire. Now, in the Methodist church, we don't quote this theologian very much. But John Calvin uh, said that there were two different things that, that refining fire does. It purifies and it burns. 
fire burns off what is corrupt. It gets rid of the dross, the, uh, the useless bits that, that remove or keep this object from being of great value. And in the burning off of that dross, the fire purifies and leaves the very, very best behind. I, I didn't know this until this week when I was researching that when silversmiths melt down silver and they're burning off the dross, they add something to the, pr- the process. Does anybody know what they do? They add charcoal to it. Um, this charcoal that they put in there, what it does is it pushes the oxygen out of the silver. And so when that's done, they can take the silver as it hardens and they can start to polish it. They can shine it. And they know when silver has reached its full purity, when the silversmith can look at the silver, it can see his reflection. See, that's what the refining fire is about. Removing out all of the dross and all of the extras and all of the impurities so that the reflection of the Creator can come out. I know a lot of Christians, talk to a lot of Christians who want to jump into the noise of the season and they want to race right on through it. I got some friends who have already told me, man, I am ready for January. Let's get the trees down and move on. I also know a bunch of folks who want the feel goods, they want the silent night goosebumps. But there's a lot of Christians that I know that don't want the unsettling promises of a Messiah who comes and is born in our lives who's inviting us to burn off the dross, to deal with the impurities and the the crud that just kind of lays there and gets in the way. A lot of us want an Advent story of Messiah with the nativity all set and pretty and nice. We don't want to be still and listen for a coming day of judgment from the Lord and anticipate it because that means we have to pause and we have to reflect and we have to go, maybe there's some things in my life that I need to deal with. I mentioned Tyler earlier in my opening moments. It was a glory sighting. One of those breakthroughs that he had this week is something I'd like to share with you as he shared with me as I was actually about finished with our sermon for today and prepping. He said, you know, Dad, things are going really well, and, and I miss you guys, and, and um, uh, this has happened, and that has happened, and, and, and I'm doing all kinds of really great things, but I realized something this week, and Joy and I are on the conference call. We said, well, what's up, bud? What's, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm feeling really guilty. I said, what are you feeling guilty about? He says, well, I know what this is, I know what me being here means for you and Mom and for Alex and for Ollie. It means you guys are apart by hundreds of miles and you don't get to see each other and I know that it's financially expensive and and I feel really bad because our life isn't normal. I feel really guilty about that. Now, if you're anything like me, then as he's saying that as a dad, I just want to jump through my screen and hold him and hug him. And there was this silence in the room, kind of like in this space right now. What do you do with that? And, and Joy said something, and the counselor said something, and, and, and as they're talking, I couldn't say anything. But I felt this kind of nudge, Jim, you, you need to say specifically something to your son. So I said, Tyler, um, you know, guilt is not always a bad thing. 
Shame is a bad thing. Shame tells you that your identity isn't worth much. And you're worth a whole lot to us, Tyler. But guilt tells us that there's something wrong and we should do something about it. I said, so Tyler, I want you to hear that there's obviously been something wrong in our family and in our lives, not just you, but with all of us, that we're trying to get worked out. And mom and I and Alex and Ollie, we want to do everything that we can so that we can get it right, we can get it fixed, so that we can find wholeness for you. And so guilt that we're torn apart, you're right, that's not okay. It's horrible, it's terrible, it's hard. It's been really rough. And so I want to speak over you, Tyler. I want to speak over you forgiveness. Mom and I forgive you. It's not okay, but you're forgiven. There's nothing you can do, Tyler, that's going to make us love you any less. There's everything in the world that we're going to do. Um, Mom, me, Alex, Ollie, we're going to do everything in our power to help you get whole. And so we forgive you. Let's do something together with this guilt. Don't let it hold there and turn into shame. And as I felt him say this, first off, the counselor's looking at me like, where are you going with this? <laughs> and, and I watched my son as I was saying these words, I watched dross burn off of him. And I watched him sit up a little bit straighter. And I got to thinking, how many of us in this season of Advent would rather go racing and rather go, oh yeah, well, I've got some guilt, but I'm just going to move right on past it, because that's the easy thing to do. Instead, hear the Father saying over you, no, it's not okay. Your brokenness is a big deal, but I love you, and there's nothing that you can do that's going to make me love you any less. Let's do something with the guilt. Hear the words of God speak, spoke, spoken over us that you're forgiven and you're free. That you can be made whole. You don't have to be ashamed because you're a person of great worth to the Father. I said last week, I'm trying very intentionally to make my sermon shorter so that we can have a time for reflection each week. And so I want to invite you, if you've got something in your hands, push it to the side. And let's sit in the stillness of this place. I want to invite you to close your eyes. Because even while we want to avoid the quiet and the still, this is where God invites us to know him. And so hear these words over you, beloved of God. I've come as a refiner to burn and to purify to get rid of the dross, the impurities in your life. Will you be still long enough to let me do that? The Father says this over us, beloved. There is nothing you can do to make me love you any less. There's nothing you do to make me love you anymore. I love you fully, completely. Let's deal with this stuff. Let's find wholeness. 
you are forgiven. Our longing for you is your wholeness. So be still. Let my fire work in your life. Gracious Jesus, we thank you that you came so many years ago and that you continue to promise a coming in our hearts and in our lives today and you yet continue to promise that you will come and there will be a day where everything will be made right. Lord, I thank you that we have a moment to pause and to let the, the refining presence of, of your Holy Spirit burn dross from us, purify us. I pray, Lord, that we would take that image with us throughout this week, that wherever we go, we will know that your work of polishing so that the world will see your reflection in us will be a reality. I pray, Lord, that this week we will sense your love and your forgiveness and your grace in such a way that somebody else would look in our eyes and they would see Jesus. Let it be so, we pray. For, Lord, we need a little bit more than just a little bit of Christmas. It is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we offer this prayer and our very lives. And all God's people said,